the quantified self. Anthony Trollope believed it unnecessary and inadvisable to write for more than three hours a day. He became one of the greatest and most prolific novelists in history by holding a full-time job with a British post office. He would rise at 5.30, fortify himself with coffee, and spend a half hour reading the previous day's work to get himself in the right voice. Then he would write for two and a half hours, monitoring the time with a watch placed on the table. He forced himself to produce one page of 250 words every quarter hour. Just to be sure, he counted the words. I have found that the 250 words has been forthcoming as regularly as my watch went, he reported. At this rate, he could produce 2,500 words by breakfast. He didn't expect to do so every single day. Sometimes there were business obligations or fox hunts. But he made sure each week to meet a goal. For each of his novels, he would draw up a working schedule, typically planning for 10,000 words a week and then keep a diary. In this, I have entered, day by day, the number of pages I have written, so that if at any time I have slipped into idleness for a day or two, the record of that idleness has been there, staring me in the face and demanding of me increased labor so that the deficiency might be supplied, he explained. There has been the record before me, and a week passed with insufficient number of pages has been a blister to my eye, and a month so disgraced would have been a sorrow to my heart. A blister to my eye. You won't find anything in the psychological literature summarizing so vividly the impact of monitoring. Trollope was a social scientist ahead of his time. But this revelation about his working technique, which was published posthumously in his autobiography, ruined his literary reputation for a good while. Critics and fellow writers, particularly the ones who couldn't meet deadlines, were appalled at his system. How could an artist work by the clock? How could inspiration be precisely scheduled and monitored? But Trollope had anticipated their criticisms in his autobiography. I have been told that such appliances are beneath the notice of a man of genius, he wrote. I have never fancied myself to be a man of genius, but had I been so, I think I might well have subjected myself to these trammels. Nothing surely is so potent as a law that may not be disobeyed. It has the force of the water drop that hollows the stone. A small daily task, if it be really daily, will beat the labors of a spasmodic Hercules. Trollope was an anomaly. Few people can turn out 1,000 good words an hour, and he himself could have been benefited from slowing down occasionally and cutting some of those 250-word digressions. But he managed to produce masterpieces like Barchester Towers and The Way We Live Now while living a very good life. While other novelists were worrying about money and struggling to turn in chapters overdue at their publishers, Trollope was prospering and remaining ahead of schedule. While one of his novels was being serialized, he usually had at least one other completed novel, often two or three, awaiting publication. I have not once, through all my literary career, felt myself in danger of being late with my task, he wrote. I have known no anxiety as to copy. The needed pages far ahead, very far ahead, had almost always been in the drawer beside me. And that little diary, with its dates and ruled spaces, 
its records that must be seen, its daily, weekly demand upon my industry, has done all that for me. Trollope's watch and diary were state-of-the-art tools for the 19th century, and they were effective enough for his purposes. But suppose instead of putting pen to paper, he had worked on a computer. Suppose that on a typical day, he had to use 16 different programs in addition to his word processing program, and that over the course of the day, he visited 40 different websites. And suppose that throughout the day, he was interrupted every 5.2 minutes by an instant message. How much good would his watch do him? How could his diary keep track of all his work? He would need a new tool, something like Rescue Time, a program that follows customers every second of computer usage. Users get reports that track exactly how they spent their time, often the depressing discovery. The computer use statistics just provided were compiled by Rescue Time by averaging the behavior of its hundreds of thousands of users. The founder of Rescue Time, Tony Wright, was surprised to see that nearly a third of his day was spent on what he calls the long tail of information porn, visits to websites unrelated to his chief work. The typical visit was only a couple of minutes, but together they consumed two and a half hours a day. This sort of tracking sounds Orwellian to some people, but is part of one of the fastest growing industries in Silicon Valley. The popularity of smartphones and other devices means that people are spending more and more time connected, and increasingly they're using connectivity to track their behavior, what they eat, how far they walk, how long they run, how many calories they burn, how their pulses vary, how efficiently they sleep, how quickly their brains operate, how their moods change, how often they have sex, what effects they're spending, how often they call their parents, how long they procrastinate. In 2008, Kevin Kelly and Gary Wolf created a website called Quantified Self, or QS, catering to users of self-regulation technology. The QS movement is still small and heavily geeky, but already it has spread far from Silicon Valley, and devotees in cities around the world are convening in person to talk gadgets, share data, and encourage one another. Esther Dyson, the famously prescient internet guru and investor, sees the quantified self-movement as both a smart financial investment and virtuous public policy, a revolutionary new industry that will flourish by selling what's good for you. Instead of paying doctors and hospitals to repair your body, you can monitor yourself to avoid illness. Instead of heeding marketers' offerings of fast foods and instant pleasures, you can set up your life so that you're bombarded with messages promoting health and conscientiousness. So far, marketers have been really effective at selling goods and other things that undermine our willpower, Dyson says. We need to apply those techniques to strengthen it. Dyson has always been disciplined herself. She's been swimming an hour every day for decades. But she finds it even easier now that she's monitoring herself with new electronic sensors like Fitbit Clip, the body media armband, and the Zio Sleep Coach headband. By measuring her movements, her skin temperature and moisture, and her brain waves, these sensors tell her exactly how much energy she expends during the day and how many hours of good sleep she gets at night. Self-quantification changes my behavior on the margins, she says. 
I walk up more stairs and take fewer escalators because I know I get more points for the extra steps. If I'm at a party in the evening, I'll tell myself that if I leave now, I could go to bed at 9.30 instead of 10.30 and I'd get more sleep, and my sleep number would look better in the morning. In many ways, it frees me to do the right thing because I can blame my behavior on the numbers. Thanks to companies like Mint.com, it's easier than ever for people to follow Charles Darwin's advice about tracking finances. But these new tools are doing more than just the grunt work of monitoring behavior. Keeping track is the first step, but it's not necessarily enough. Thomas Jefferson was astonishingly compulsive about noting every penny he earned and spent, even on July 4, 1776, when his revolutionary Declaration of Human Rights was being finalized and adopted, he made sure to record in his memorandum book what he spent for a thermometer and some gloves. As president, he tracked the White House's bills for butter and eggs at the same time he was making the Louisiana Purchase. Yet he didn't put the details into perspective until it was too late. When he eventually stepped back to balance his assets and liabilities, he was shocked to discover that he was disastrously in debt. Recording the data had given him a false sense of being in control of his finances, but it wasn't enough. He needed the sort of analysis offered by Mint's computers. Once you let Mint look at your banking and credit card transactions, it categorizes them to show where your money is going and whether you're spending more than you make. Mint can't force you to change your habits. The computers can only read your records, not touch your money. But it can make you think twice. It can email a weekly financial summary and send a text message when your account balance is low. It will nudge you with an email reporting unusual spending on restaurants and alert you when you exceed your budget for clothing or groceries. Besides generating some guilty sensations in the spendthrift brain, Mint offers rewards for virtue. You can establish a variety of short-term and long-term goals, taking a vacation, buying a home, saving up for retirement, and then get progress reports. Mint will help you set a goal and a timetable and then watch your spending, Patzer says. It'll say, if you cut back $100 a month on restaurants, you can retire 1.3 years sooner or buy your BMW 12 days sooner. You don't want to think about these goals on a day-to-day basis. You want that iPad. You want that coffee. You want to go out with your friends. This quantifies how your short-term behavior affects the long-term goals so you have a chance of actually budgeting in a way that makes a difference. No one knows exactly how well this works yet, because Mint is a commercial operation, not a controlled experiment. But there are already some encouraging signs, as we found when we asked the Mint research staff to look for broad trends in people's spending habits before and after they joined Mint. It wasn't easy to isolate Mint's effects against the larger background trend taking place between 2008 and 2010, a general increase in spending by everyone as the economy slowly improved after the panic of 2008. Still, the data, culled from 2 billion transactions of 3 billion anonymous users, showed some clear benefits of monitoring. For the great majority, 80% of people, the upward trajectory of their spending was tempered after they joined Mint and began monitoring their transactions. And most people's spending was further tempered if they used the information to set up budgets and goals on Mint. The biggest effects were observed in people's spending on groceries, restaurants, and credit card finance charges, 
some very sensible categories for cutting back. Some people are so horrified to see their spending totals that they vow to take drastic actions right away, but Mint's founder advises a gradual approach. If you cut too hard and too fast, you'll never stick with it and you'll hate yourself, Patcher says. If you're spending $500 a month on restaurants and you try to set a new budget of $200, you'll end up saying, forget that, it's too hard. But if you reduce to $450 or $400, you can make that without radically changing your lifestyle. Then the next month, you can go another $50 or $100. Keep the monthly changes to 20% until you get things under control. Not-so-invidious comparisons Once you've taken the first two steps in self-control, setting a goal and monitoring your behavior, you're confronted with a perennial question. Should you focus on how far you've come or how much remains to be done? There's no simple, universal answer, but it does make a difference, as demonstrated in experiments by Elliot Fishbach of the University of Chicago. She and a Korean colleague, Min Jung-koo, asked employees at a Korean advertising agency to describe their current role at the agency and their current projects. Then, by random assignment, half were told to reflect on what they had achieved thus far in their current role, dating back to when they had joined the agency. The rest were instructed to reflect on what they planned to achieve but had not yet accomplished. The ones who wrote about what they had already achieved had higher satisfaction with their current tasks and projects as compared with the ones who reflected on what they had not yet achieved. But the latter were more motivated to reach their goals and then move on to more challenging new projects. Those who focused on what they had already done did not seem eager to move on to more difficult and challenging tasks. They were reasonably content with where they were and what they were currently doing. For contentment, apparently, it pays to look at how far you've come. To stoke motivation and ambition, Focus instead on the road ahead. Either way, you can gain additional benefits by comparing yourself with others, and that's never been easier to do thanks to the abundance of networked data. Mint will tell you how your rent and restaurant bills and clothing purchases compare with your neighbors or with the national average. Rescue Time will give you a percentile ranking of your productivity or your aimless web surfing in relation to the average user. FlowTrack and Nike Plus and other sites let runners share their mileage and times with friends and teammates. You can get gadgets and smartphone apps to compare your energy usage with your neighbors, and the comparisons make a difference, as demonstrated in the study of utility customers in California. When people got bills comparing their monthly electricity usage with the neighborhood average, the people in the above-average homes promptly cut back on their use of electricity. These sorts of comparisons become even more powerful when you start openly sharing your data with others. As we researched this book, we heard plenty of stories about people who benefited from monitoring themselves, like using pedometers to keep track of their daily steps. But the most enthusiastic walkers were the ones who shared each day's tally with a few friends. They were applying a sound psychological principle that was demonstrated in some of Baumeister's earliest experiments, long before he got involved in studying self-control. Public information has more impact than private information. People care more about what other people know about them than about what they know about themselves. A failure, a slip-up, a lapse in self-control can be swept under the carpet pretty easily if you're the only one who knows about it. 
you can rationalize it or just plain ignore it. But if other people know about it, it's harder to dismiss. After all, the other person might not buy the excuses that you make, even though you find them quite satisfying. And you'll have even more trouble selling the excuse when you expand from one person to a whole social network. By going public, you're not just exposing yourself to potential shame. You're also outsourcing the job of monitoring, which can ease the burden on yourself. An outsider can often encourage you by pointing out signs of progress that you've taken for granted. And when things are going badly, sometimes the best solution is to look elsewhere for help. One popular QS application, MoodScope, was developed by an entrepreneur battling depression who wanted help monitoring his condition. He devised an application that lets him take a quick daily test to gauge his mood. Besides using it to record his own emotional ups and downs so that he can look for patterns and causes, he created an option for the results to be automatically emailed to his friends. That way, when his mood darkens, his friends see the data and get in touch with him. The digital tools and the data are just catalysts for people to motivate themselves and one another, Dyson says. You find the model that works best for you. Maybe you compare numbers with your friends because you don't want to be ashamed in front of them, or you don't want to let down the team. Different people are motivated in different ways. If you're a spendthrift, you can try to control yourself by letting a tightwad friend be alerted when you start a spending binge. And if you both study your patterns of spending, you can start to understand what causes the binges. Do you make impulsive purchases when you're in a good mood and your willpower is low? Or are you one of the compulsive shoppers who buy when they're feeling depressed or insecure? If so, you're suffering from what psychologists call misregulation, the mistaken belief that buying something will regulate your mood for the better, when in fact, you'll just feel worse afterward. Even if you're not a spendthrift, you could still benefit from tracking your spending and comparing it with what your neighbors are doing. You might discover that you're an extreme tightwad, not the worst problem to have, but still a problem, and one that's surprisingly common. Behavioral economists have found that neurotic penny-pinching may be even more prevalent than neurotic overspending, affecting some one in five people. Brain scans have similarly pinpointed the culprit, an insula that reacts with hyperactive horror at the prospect of parting with cash. The result is a condition that researchers called hyperopia, the opposite of myopia in which you focus too much on the future at the expense of the present. Such penny-pinching can waste time, alienate friends, drive your family crazy, and make you miserable. The studies show that tightwads aren't any happier than spendthrifts, and that they suffer a case of saver's remorse when they look back on all the opportunities they passed up. When the time comes for the final monitoring, when you're adding up not just your assets, but your life, you don't want to rediscover the old proverb about there being no pockets in shrouds. The quantified self consists of much more than dollars. 